May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So here we are, what seems like already, in the fourth and last Sunday of Advent, the last with less than a week until Christmas. This new church year is now well underway, and this calendar year is just about done. So I wonder how you describe this last year. I guess most of it, before August, was okay, for us at least, pretty much life as normal. But since August, it has been a bit tough. Delta has changed the game. And we are learning to live with COVID. And that means the rules have changed. Vaccine mandates and vaccine passes have changed how many of us are navigating our way through all of this. So I wonder then what today's theme of love and what Mary's protest song offers us. Today's Gospel reading and psalm is a rare and radical glimpse into an intimate moment between two women. That in itself is a radical thing in Scripture. Mostly the stories in the Bible are about men. And when women are included, uh, it's how they relate to the men. But this, mostly, is a story about two women. The only males in the story are yet to be born. Only one of them actually does anything, and he leaps. And the other one gets talked about a lot. So we have this rare and remarkable story that just focuses on two women. Both of these women are pregnant, and that both unites them and divides them, holds them apart. Mary's pregnancy has been hoped for for a long time, for so long, and now, now when all seemed lost, now this pregnancy brings an end to her disgrace and an end to the source of her shame. She can now hold her head up in her family and in the community. In contrast, Mary is, well, almost too young. And her pregnancy brings disgrace, or at least that's how we normally read it. Luke is much less clear about this than Matthew. Matthew makes a point about this. Luke barely mentions it. Except, except as soon as Mary says, I am the Lord's servant, let it be with me just as you have said. And then the angel leaves her. She gets up and she goes to Elizabeth's. So reading between the lines, there is a sense of Mary needing to leave her very conservative little village for a while, to maybe to let things simmer down, but also maybe, maybe just to have some space to work out what all this means and what to do with it all. And she wants to do that in the company of a wiser member of her family who is also pregnant. What unites them both is that they are both pregnant with their first child, with all the uncertainty and wonder, all the fear and hope, all the unknowing and joy in that. If some of us drag back into our memory, we might just remember some of what that was like. 
uh, some of you as mothers and others of us as men who kind of circled around that but also tied up with all of that. They also both knew their child was a gift of God. And maybe that's what led Mary to go to Elizabeth's. They both knew at some deep level that their child would play an important role in the life of the people of God, which just amplifies all the wonder and worry and unknowing. On our fourth Sunday in Advent, with our theme of love, we might also pay attention to another thing that unites them, and that is their common faith as Jews. And as such, they would have prayed the Shema every morning at the beginning of each day and at the end of each day. Ha! And... It's now supposed to magically come up, but uh, it's in the ad clock. Never mind. We'll just stay there. So the Shema is, well, we know it, at least some of it, pretty well. It goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Jesus used it in one of his very few straight answers. I think this is the only time he gave a straight answer in any of the Gospels when he was asked which of the commandments was the greatest. He quotes it. But it carries on. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. And it carries on. And all of this is recited with your right hand over your eyes. In her last book, Wholehearted Faith, Rachel Held Evans spends some time exploring the importance of the Shema. She quotes the 11th century rabbi Rashi, who was revealed as one of the great interpreters of the Hebrew Scriptures. His commentaries on uh, the Mosaic Law uh, are still included in the Talmud today. He emphasized that the Shema instruction is rooted in love. Love is the root of its instruction, and love is the fuel for its action. She says that Roshi taught that humanity's heartfelt, heartfelt obedience had to be motivated by love, not by fear or some other feeling. The one who acts out of love cannot be compared to the one who acts out of fear. He wrote, if one serves his master out of fear, when the master sets a great burden upon him, his servant will leave him and go away. And perhaps that's why the Hebrew word hesed appears 248 times in the Hebrew Bible. Hesed is a covenantal love. A profound and committed and long-term love. A kind love, but not a romantic love. The Bible scholar Daryl L. Bock describes Hesed as wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, 
acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the, the requirements of duty. Hesed describes acts of loving kindness between people, it describes our attitude towards God, and it describes God's attitude towards this world and humanity. It is a big word, and it is the theme for this Sunday, but we call it love. Howard Evans goes on to say about the Shema, that's the kind of love that God had for our ancestors and had for us. But we're so often too busy to even notice. So notice, the prayer says. Notice that you are surrounded by, infused with, and kept in life by love. God's love. The beating heart of the universe. And once you notice that divine love, what choice do you have but to pay attention to the one who loves you? If you truly believe that you are loved with that kind of love, what else could you possibly do but listen? So in praying the Shema twice each day, Mary and Elizabeth, like all those who had before them and still do today who pray this prayer, were invited to pay attention to God's knock you off your feet love so in this moment we are privileged to witness in our reading from Luke this morning two women who are paying attention and listening to love and Mary is the as the first to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Luke one of the themes of Luke's gospel is the acts of the Holy Spirit and uh, we usually think that the Holy Spirit fills people on Pentecost, and that's when there's lots of filling. But actually, there are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit before then. And Elizabeth is the first, a woman. And her words, her words which have been recited by those who have recited the Angelus for the last, well, probably nearly 2,000 years. Hail Mary, Mother of God, blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Those words... Make room for the Magnificat. They make room for Mary to respond. They invite that response. And so Mary offers these words which we know as the Magnificat. And some of us have sung at Evensong. And have, these words have been sung at Evensong for hundreds of years. And that makes them very familiar. Which makes it very tricky when you read it from another version. Because you keep trying to slip back into what you said at Evensong, or sung at Evensong. And in some ways it's really good that those words are familiar, but in other ways it's a bit of a problem, because, well, we miss the point. We miss what this song is all about because it is so well known. We miss that this is the song of a poor girl in a very difficult situation. A poor girl from a poor village in a not a great area, in a land under occupation. And it is a song that longs for the day when God's justice and peace is restored. It is a song that longs for the day when God's hesed is lived out. And that means for them when the occupation will end. It stands in the tradition of other songs of women in the Bible. The song of Miriam. 
and Deborah. It echoes Hannah's song, which we recited a few weeks ago. And just like Hannah's song, it links what, happened, what is happening to them to God's hesed, to God's love. And it links it to the ancient hopes that have been and are being and will be fulfilled. The ancient hopes that we heard in the reading from Micah. This is not a nice song. It has at various times been banned by the authorities who did not want the poor to sing that God has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations, that God has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, that God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. If you say those kinds of things in places in America, you will be accused of being a communist. That's the kind of song that Mary prayed. It is a protest song. It is a rebel song. It is a deeply subversive song. And it should be sung with care. One of the really interesting things about Mary's song is the tense that it is written in. So, in the podcast on Working Preacher, Matt Skinner, shout out to Matt, did not want to be named, says this is called Nomic Aorist. It is not a tense that exists in English. The aorist tense does not exist in English. I used to know about the aorist tense when I did Greek, and because we don't have it in English, I probably forgot about it. And every time I come across it, I have to look it up again on the internet. What is this aorist tense? It's kind of not a tense. But the aorist tense, the, real, the nomic aorist, is a really interesting tense because it describes either a generic truth or a habitual truth or a habitual action. And so if you read various versions of the Bible, some of these will translate this in the perfect tense, God has done this thing, or just the simple past tense, God did these things, or in the present tense, God is doing these things. And occasionally in the future tense. And all of that works. Because what is really being described here is a generic truth about God. That this is how God habitually acts. It is all about God's hesed love. And God's hesed love, as talked about by Mary, is what lies behind this generic truth about God. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he paraphrases the opening lines of Mary's song as, I'm bursting with God news, I'm dancing the song of my Saviour. After the last 20 or so months, I wonder how many of us are bursting with God news. I can't say that I am much in the mood for dancing. If I'm honest, I'm struggling to just get to Christmas. And I'm looking to the new year, wondering what might be next. But I'm not sure that Mary's song allows me to stop there. Because Christmas really is about bursting with God news. It really is an invitation to join the dance. It is an invitation for us to notice that we are surrounded by, infused with, and kept in life by God's hesed love. 
that beating heart of the universe. And once we have noticed this Hesed love, what choice do we have but to pay attention to the one who loves us? And once we do that, then we can join the dance, which might seem so far away for us today. So out of that, I just have questions for myself, which are not on the screen. I ask myself, how does Mary's song help me see God's hesed love at work today? And what might God news be I what God news might I be invited to burst with as we approach this Christmas? And how might we join the dance of the song of God this Christmas? So those are the questions that come for me as I listen to Mary's song. I wonder what questions arise for you and how you might answer them. So let's just spend a moment thinking about that. And then we will use the words of the liturgical affirmation to affirm our faith in the God who holds us in hesed love.